something in my eye and it won't come out staring into the abyss so Do you I don't need to come over to. there <laughs> if you have some sort of eye drops on you sure I, got a pencil. <laughs> I don't want you to do any surgery on me staring into the abyss so you don't have to this is hell and is there any more of a bottomless pit than the cover-ups of atrocities committed by militaries and governments all over the world because that's what we are talking about today early on in the presidency of Donald J. Trump, his administration worked with military leaders to circumvent the United States Congress in order to declare war. In doing so, they launched what for all intents and purposes was a war in Somalia. The war was being conducted in a way that did not employ all the checks and balances that had been used in an attempt to limit civilian deaths during the Obama administration. Now, an investigation has shown that not only were a woman and her child killed after escaping the original drone attack on the vehicle within which they were traveling, but some five years after the events came to light, the U.S. has done nothing to compensate the victims' families for their loss. In a few minutes, we will have the return of writer, author, and journalist Nick Turse, Nick Turse, T-U-R-S-E, Nick Turse. In the very first days of the Trump administration, the president launched an off-the-books war in Somalia, the results of which are now only coming to light. So, on to discuss his most recent uh, investigation will be Nick. That investigation is titled Civilian Harm, Secret Pentagon Investigation, Found No One at Fault in Drone Strike That Killed woman and four-year-old. You can find that uh, article right now at The Intercept as it was just recently pu published in the last few hours. This story was supported by the Pulitzer Center. Nick was on the show most recently back in June when we spoke with him about another investigative journalism piece of his, Kissinger's Killing Fields, interviews with more than 75 witnesses and survivors of U.S. military attacks, an exclusive archive of uh, documents show that Henry Kissinger is responsible for even more civilian deaths in Cambodia than was previously known. And despite that investigation, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken and a lot of the most powerful elites within Washington politics went out and celebrated his birthday with him. Nick is a contributing writer for The Intercept, reporting on national security and foreign policy. He is the author most recently of Next Time, They'll Come to Count the Dead, War and Survival in South Sudan, as well as Tomorrow's Battlefield, U.S. Proxy Wars and Secret Ops in Africa, and Kill Anything That Moves, The Real American War in Vietnam. Nick was on the show way back in January of 2013 to discuss Kill Everything That Moves, and you can find that interview at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash thisishell, when you search on his last name, Terse, T-U-R-S-E. 
Nick has received a Ridenauer Prize for investigative reporting, a James Aronson Award for social justice journalism, and a Guggenheim Fellowship. He's a fellow at the Nation Institute and the managing editor over at tomdispatch.com. You can find out more about Nick at his website, nickturse.com, and you can follow him on Twitter at nickturse. Producing is Richard, don't call me Dan Kugler, Norwood. I'm having the over-under of me mistakenly calling you Dan uh, Kugler at about Mm. three and a half today. (laughs) So what's new about you, sir? Good morning, fellow traveler. (laughs) Good morning. (laughs) No, nothing nothing too crazy has happened to me in the last couple weeks, so... All the same, all the time. <laughs> so years ago, when we had just moved into this neighborhood, from which I'm speaking right now, uh, Chicago's far north side, West Ridge neighborhood, what's known as Nortown or West Rogers Park or Little India, when we first uh, moved here, there was a 24-hour convenience store, a national chain outlet, and early on a weekday morning, it was the only store that was open. Sure, there's like a dozen other corner stores open within a half-mile walk, but this was the only one that was always open. I'm not sure if the cashier I always saw in there was the franchise owner, but I rarely saw anyone ever working there but him. Early one Saturday morning, I had to go out and get some milk, and it being the only store open, I went in, saw the same person who I always saw behind the cash register. As usual, I would say good morning, and he would never say anything other than giving me a dirty look. Probably because I look like I just rolled out of bed, which I had, but as anyone who's ever met me during This Is Hell's Wednesday office hours, I generally look like I just rolled out of bed with my hair disheveled and squinting due to me being intensely light-sensitive, and the bright interrogation-level lighting in that particular chain of convenience stores probably did not help. So I grabbed my milk, went up to the counter, paid the cashier, and as I was leaving, I said, enjoy your weekend which I realized was kind of a horrible thing to say to someone who was working on a weekend. And have a nice day ain't great either. It's like you're rubbing their nose in the fact that you are enjoying your weekend, so why shouldn't they, despite being at work? Before I noticed that what I had said was rude and sensitive, even filled with privilege, the cashier shot back at me with a harsh tone. There is no weekend. Weekends are for the weak. Who knew that some 20 years later, his sage insight would still hold true. For me, this there is still no weekend, and I really got to do something about it because the only way I can spend the upcoming holiday relaxing with family is if, like the past weekend, I work all of next weekend, too. So my weekend was barely a weekend again, but I did get a chance to go out for breakfast on Saturday morning, and I took a couple of really nice walks, and uh, we, you know, I don't know. It was a pretty relaxing weekend overall, despite the fact that I was working the entire time. So, on what I can only assume is a completely unrelated note, a torn and beat-up book was left at the front door of our studio. It's titled No Excuses, The Art of Self-Discipline. But more important than another weekend that wasn't, also I can have an extended weekend during the upcoming holiday. Richard, please remind us what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience. This week's question from hell is what obvious reality do you insist 
on denying in spite of all evidence. <laughs> it's not insist in, I, insist on. On, yeah. I kept getting corrected <laughs> by one machine after another. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell wins their choice of whatever This Is Hell swag they want. You can check out all of our merch right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is Hell, and Richard has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is Colleen. CoverMG.com posted an article last week with the headline, quote, an expert reveals how to cure a hangover, unquote. The story states that Vandana Vijay, a biochemist behind a post- Social replenishment drink. So is that a <laughs> is that a uh, behind a post? A post social replenishment drink. Post or is it post social? I don't know. It's very confusing. <laughs> I have no idea what that is. Drink has revealed what your body needs after a night of partying, and Colleen is a nutrient that can help you feel quote replenished unquote after a long night. VJ is quoted saying. Quote, Colleen is an important nutrient that plays a role in lots of bodily functions. Following an evening of socializing, Colleen can help us to feel more replenished in the morning by supporting our liver function and brain functions. While many Brits, maybe Americans also, may not have heard of Colleen, it's an essential nutrient that supports the body with transporting fat away from the liver. Where does it go, Chuck? Nobody knows. But apparently that supports a normal liver function. To support, yes. Who knew? Alongside the benefits for your liver, Colleen has also been found to support our brain function, including better memory and processing. According to another article at Healthline.com, Colleen can be found in eggs, organ meat, beef, chicken, turkey, fish, caviar, shiitake, mushrooms, soybeans, wheat germ, quinoa, Cruciferous vegetables like cauliflower, broccoli, and Brussels with a capital B, sprouts, sprouts. (laughs) kidney and lima beans, red potatoes, almonds, and cottage cheese. Wow, where is it not? (laughs) Exactly. That makes this hangover cure, Cowling. And also my favorite Dolly Parton song, Cowling. I love that song. That's a really great song. Uh, Cowling sounded familiar to me like uh, we had already used it as a hangover cure during our 27 years here on air. We've shared well over 1,000 hangover cures on the show, but to the best of my knowledge, Cowling has never been any week's hangover cure. Then I realized... That while Kowleen has never has been mentioned during many of our hangover cures, Kowleen was never the cure. And I'm absolutely certain that every one of the foods containing Kowleen in that list that Richard just read has been this week's hangover cure in the past. So thank you, Kowleen, for curing hangovers in so many ways and providing a long list of hangover cures used on the show. We got an email that we will be sharing after our guests. Uh, somebody's offering us money, and we'll tell you why. Coming up, the cover-up of civilian deaths in Somalia by the U.S. military. Richard will have our Patreon subscribers' answers to this week's question from hell. We'll tell you what happened on last week's bonus Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. We'll share with you the rest of this week's guests and who they will be. And Dr. Sebastian Vupper, who has a Ph.D. in history, has an all-new past inside the present when he offers the historical context of the past to help us have a better understanding of the present, Richard, what's Seb talking about during this week's Past Inside the Present? 
Seb starts to explore the long and complicated history of a few words to get at what, quote, Zionism really means. Yikes, your eyewitness to grief. This is hell. Hey, look what I just did. In the first days of the presidency of Donald Trump, the president launched an off-the-books war in Somalia with devastating effects to the Somali people. Here to tell us about his most recent investigation, writer, author, journalist Nick Terse returns to This Is Hell to discuss his latest investigation at The Intercept, civilian harm. Secret Pentagon investigation found no one at fault in drone strike that killed woman and a four-year-old. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Nick. Thanks for having me back. Always great to have you on the show, sir. You write about four-year-old Miriam Shiloh Muse, who you explained that in late March 2018, Miriam's mother, 22-year-old Louis Dahir, uh, I'm sorry, Lul Dahir Muhammad, planned to visit her brother to see his children for the first time. Miriam insisted on coming along. The trip would take several days. Miriam and her mother spent the first night with relatives in a town about 11 miles from Lul's brother's home. Her brother had planned to pick them up there, but Lul couldn't reach him, so on the morning of April 1st, she and Miriam caught a ride with some men in a maroon Toyota Hilux pickup. It's a huge pickup truck. That same morning, as Lul's brother, Hasim Dahir Muhammad, was on his way to pick up his sister and niece, he passed the maroon Toyota pickup. He noticed mattresses and pillows in the bed, and at the last second, caught sight of Lul with Miriam on her lap in the passenger seat. He waved and honked but the truck kept going. Kasim's phone wasn't working, so he decided to drive on to Albur, where Lowell and Miriam had just spent the night to see his family before returning home to welcome his sister and niece. Seconds after he reached the house, Kasim heard the first explosion, followed by another, and after a pause, one more blast. You write, this is a story about missed connections, flawed evidence, flawed intelligence, and fatal blindness. It started with bad self service and ended with an American missile obliterating civilians the U.S. didn't intend to kill, but didn't care enough to save. So, Nick, who didn't care enough to save? An individual? Was this a group decision? Was this made by a collective? Was this out of the control of all of the people who actually did the killing? Who were the people that didn't care? Well, thanks for having me on. There's a, there was a secret uh, U.S. strike cell, uh, which um, the U.S. government won't identify. Uh, I was able to get a, uh, a classified investigation file, but uh, but the, the name of the, the strike cell, it's been um, uh, redacted from it. But this was uh, a group of special operations personnel and uh, what they call strike cell analysts and they also call, uh, there are also people there called FMV analysts or full motion video analysts. So they are watching full motion video from a drone uh, and logging everything that they see. There's a real, at least pretense of precision going on. Uh, they're calling out uh, who they see get into the, the pickup truck, uh, where they walk, uh, you know, around the passenger side, see them get in, they stop someplace. They, so they're logging all of this. Um, and eventually, uh, you know, even though they were never exactly sure, there was an argument among those personnel about how many people were in the truck. Uh, they decided to take this drone strike. Uh, they never had the count right. They never noticed that uh, a woman had entered the truck, which uh, that would have at least caused a, a pause in the uh, in the process. 
They never noticed uh, a child get into the truck, which should have uh, caused them to uh, delay the strike until the child was clear of the area or, or not take the strike at all. Uh, but uh, but the Americans, even though they're they're watching this and have this, uh, you know, uh, what's supposed to be, uh, you know, foolproof technology and, uh, you know, sensors, they're uh, assumedly listening in on conversations with cell phones as well while watching this in, in real time. Uh, they got all of that wrong. And they even had one last chance. They hit this pickup truck with uh, with the initial strike, which somehow did not kill uh, the woman, Wildahir Muhammad, or her uh, four-year-old daughter. And they got out of the pickup and ran down the road. But the Americans, uh, again, didn't understand what they were seeing or you know, didn't, didn't care to take the time to do another assessment and fired another missile. That, uh, that cut them down. It was a double tap strike and killed them about 200 feet away as they ran for safety. You use the phrase, as you do in your writing, the pretense of precision. Who yeah. is that pretense meant to satisfy? Who is at least pretending that they, I mean, why are they at least pretending to be precise in these kind of situations? Yeah, there are rules of engagement. Um, and at the time, <laughs> You see, the, the, as you mentioned, the Trump administration had relaxed uh, rules of engagement that existed during the Obama administration. Uh, this isn't to say that the Obama administration didn't kill civilians, but there were uh, some more stringent uh, uh, rules to follow. Uh, when Donald Trump came into the White House, uh, the military already had, uh, you know, looser strictures uh, that they were they were looking for, and they presented to him. He signed off on them. And this put the uh, the ultimate decision making role not in the White House but down to a, a ground level commander. Uh, they made the uh, it made it easier to conduct these strikes. So, uh, you know, I talked to a drone pilot and strike signal analyst who worked in Somalia at this time, and he told me that uh, generally there were uh, what they what they would refer to as wickets that you had to satisfy. Uh, he had worked on strike cells, conducting drone strikes in Afghanistan before with special operations forces. And there he said there were five wickets that you had to, to pass generally. Uh, that um, you know, that there were, uh, they had spotted what, what he referred to as a, a, quote, known bad guy in uh, an, uh, an enemy-controlled area. Uh, that might be one wicket. Another wicket might be that there are no uh, civilians present in the area. Um, and once you would satisfy five of these, you can conduct the strike. He said that in Somalia, uh, he wasn't ever sure what these wickets were and that they played fast and loose with the rules. So there were a set of rules on the books, but uh, you know, in practice, it didn't seem like they followed them in, in any kind of consistent way. Uh, when the Biden administration came into the White House, uh, took a look at these rules, uh, what they noticed reportedly was that uh, there weren't supposed to be any strikes taken if there were known civilians in the area. But that was um, was taken in war zones like Somalia to mean only women and children, that if there were, quote, unquote, civilian men there, they probably weren't civilians, that they would uh, classify uh, any military-age man 
who was in the presence of someone in al-Shabaab as a member of the terrorist group al-Shabaab. Uh, so when they missed uh, seeing a woman and child in this circumstance, uh, they just counted it as an adult male and they took the strike. Why was the Trump administration in such a rush to have a military confrontation, to have uh, an assault on in Somalia? What was the reasoning for that rush so early on in his administration? This was, uh, you know, the U.S. African commander, AFRICOM, had been apparently, uh, they, they wanted uh, looser rules of engagement, uh, as did uh, Central Command, CENTCOM, which oversees the Middle East. And uh, but the the Obama White House uh, kept these military commands on a on a short leash. Uh, they were eager to conduct more strikes. And you know, once uh, Trump was elected, it seems that they uh, you know they already drew up looser rules of engagement and had them ready to go. And within days of uh, of Trump uh, taking office, uh, then Secretary of Defense uh, Mattis went to the White House and presented these uh, to the Trump administration. And I believe that um, it was just a matter of the, the military asking, and he was uh, he was happy to, to sign off on this and just allow the military a, a freer hand. Uh, I think they made the, uh, the argument, uh, this is from, from public statements uh, at the time, it sounds like they, they made the argument that uh, that it would allow them uh, more flexibility, and uh, uh, you know, it was it was presented as as uh, that they were letting too many members of, of Al Shabaab escape, uh, waiting for a higher level approval, and that they could uh, you know more effectively uh, combat uh, militants by having this uh, these looser rules. Of course, uh, you know what what I found in the uh, this investigation was that they. You know, they they seem to play really fast and loose with these rules. Uh, obviously, you know they they weren't able to spot a woman and child in this. Uh, it seems that they didn't take uh, great care in this. When I spoke to this drone pilot, uh, strike zone analyst, uh, he told me that um, that it seems like they did everything wrong. I had him take a look at the investigation file, and he said it was just one error after another. Uh, but uh, and and this was, I think, the trickle down effect of these rules being relaxed. You quote Daphne Aviatar, director of the security with human rights program at Amnesty International USA, telling The Intercept, ultimately, this is just one of many tragedies caused by the U.S. military's systemic failure to adequately distinguish civilians from combatants, to own up to its deadly mistakes, to learn from and learn from them and to provide assistance to survivors. The failure to adequately distinguish civilians from combatants isn't just tragic. It's also a violation of international law and completely undermines U.S. counterterrorism strategy. So, I mean, you would think if it completely undermines U.S. counterterrorism strategy, that it wouldn't be a strategy that was pursued. Earlier this month, we spoke with security scholar Sophia Goodfriend, who argues that there is no such thing as precision warfare. Is smart weapon technology up to the task of decreasing the likelihood of civilian deaths in wartime? But its operators are not. In theory, are smart weapons less likely to kill civilians? But in practice, human decision-making leads to terrible outcomes. I think that's very much the case. Uh, 
if you if you look at these rules of engagement, even the the Trump era rules, uh, it's it's also that same sort of pretense of precision. It's a it's a very long list. Uh, these seem like on paper very stringent rules, but uh, but when in practice, uh, as as these strikes are carried out in the field. Uh, you know, there there seems to be a, a real lack of you know any kind of quality control. It doesn't look like um, from the investigation file that, that uh, I relied on here that uh, members of the of the strike cell felt empowered to speak up. Um, and you know, I I talked to um, you know an, another. Uh, he was a. Uh, a uh, member of a of a strike cell who worked um in Afghanistan, Iraq, elsewhere in the world and he was a legal advisor and you know he talked about uh just how much pressure uh, there is on uh contractors there are private contractors who work in these strike cells and also uh young personnel uh, newer personnel and it looked like there were uh, many of those uh, in this case and you know that, that there's uh, there's so much pressure on them to come to the conclusion that they think their commander wants that uh, that it's it's really almost irresistible and they will uh, take strikes uh, just based on this you point out that the attack was the product of faulty intelligence as well as rushed and imprecise targeting carried out by a special operations strike cell whose members considered themselves inexperienced according to the documents. A secret investigation led to an admission that civilians were killed and a strong suggestion of confirmation bias, a psychological phenomenon that leads people to cherry-pick information that confirms pre-existing beliefs. Despite this, the investigation exonerated the team involved. Do we know what those pre-existing beliefs were that may have led them to think a family traveling in a truck were terrorists? Yeah, it's... Basically, the fact that uh, this there were members of, of Al Shabaab uh, who were in this truck, uh, but uh, there's an assumption then that, that any uh, anyone who's with uh, members of Al Shabaab must be, uh, you know, a member or a sympathizer uh, with Al Shabaab. And in this case, uh, we know that the uh, the woman Lahir Muhammad and her daughter Miriam Shiloh Muse were not connected with al-Shabaab. They just happen to live in an area where uh, al-Shabaab is present, and al-Shabaab is basically the de facto government there, at least they were at the time. Uh, there's very little public transportation in Somalia. It's not available. Uh, you mentioned uh, at the top you know, that she wasn't able to get in touch with her brother. Uh, this is because uh, al-Shabaab also uh, controls the telecom in the area. So uh, to uh, cut down on, on uh, informants informing on al-Shabaab and uh, signals intelligence going on. They often have the phone service shut off. So at least people with very few options. This is why her brother wasn't able to connect with her. And you know, she she used the only available means of transportation. Uh, in, in Somalia, it's customary if you see a woman and child walking on the side of the road that you'll uh, you know, pull over and offer them a ride. Uh, it's It's not uncommon. Uh, I talked to Somali officials from the area, and they said uh, these were very low-level Al-Shabaab uh, officials who were in the car. Uh, local officials uh, who uh, uh, Lowell wouldn't have been familiar with. So, you know, to her, they were just 
local men who were uh, you know, just uh, just willing to lend a hand, and she would have had no idea who they were. She just ended up in the wrong place at the wrong time. And you know the way the United States sees it: uh, if you're you're with anyone associated with Al Shabaab, then then you must be guilty. And obviously, in this case, what's not the case. And it's also likely that uh, that as many as three more people who were killed in that attack were also civilians. Uh, there was a, a local elder from the area, uh, as well as a, a poet, uh, which is, is common in Somalia, a professional poet, and uh, and a younger man. And I talked to uh, a number of, of Somali government officials. They told me that the, the younger man, who was 20 years old, uh, definitely wasn't associated with al-Shabaab. Uh, he was a student studying in Mogadishu, who was uh, the, the capital, uh, who was just on his way home. And he also, uh, like Lil and her daughter, just caught a ride in that vehicle. And the others, uh, the poet and the elder, they happened to live in the area and they had connections with Al-Shabaab. But, uh, but officials there didn't think they were, you know, quote unquote, real members of the group. Uh, they said that, you know, it's it's likely that they just uh, had relations with the group because, again, uh, Al-Shabaab is, is the local government and there's really no way to avoid them. Um, so, uh, you know, the, the U.S. sees it in a, in a very skewed way that has very little to do with how uh, life goes on in Somalia and how people have to try and navigate living in a war zone. And I would say that is not just in Somalia, obviously. How difficult is it for the U.S. military, CIA, whoever's involved in these drone strikes, how difficult is it for them to separate Somalis from al-Shabaab? This is something that we heard from the Israeli military when it came to Gaza and the Palestinians, saying that they were going into Gaza to protect Palestinians from Hamas. That's a very difficult thing to do. It's a very difficult thing to separate who are the Pel- who are non-Hamas members and who are Hamas members in Gaza. How difficult is it for the U.S., the military, the CIA, whoever is targeting with drones, to distinguish de- between Somalis and members of Al Shabaab? Yeah, there's there's seems to be very little local knowledge, and this is something else that comes through in the investigation file that I had. That uh, they said there was there was no what they call the checks and balance system uh, that uh, made sure that there were at least people who had had uh, you know longer uh, a longer duration of experience in Somalia working on these strike cells. So it seems that often uh, there were really inexperienced uh, members of the team. Who, you know, didn't understand anything about uh, you know, Somali life, uh, how people again navigate the the war zone that that is their home, uh, you know, even even basic things like uh, you know the the style of dress. Uh, this was something that that also came out in the investigation file uh, when I was talking with uh, the U.S. strike cell analyst. He said, you know, he uh, he made. You know, specific point to mention that the, the U.S. had redacted all the uh, photos, what they call snaps, uh, which are uh, snippets of the drone footage uh, showing uh, this mother and, and child. Uh, he said that uh, if if those snaps were in there, uh, you you would see it would be apparent that this was uh, a woman and not not a man. That the the dress. Uh, of of Somali men and women is is so uh, you know it, it's 
the, the difference is so great that, uh, you know, as long as strike was carried out during the day, as this was, there's no way to mistake a, uh, a woman for a man. Uh, women who live in Al-Shabaab territory uh, must wear, <laughs> due to Al-Shabaab, uh, something called the gel bob, which is... Um, you know, it's it's a, a more voluminous version of the hijab. And, um, you know, one of Will's brothers, uh, when I spoke with him, likened it to a large umbrella. And the strike analyst and also Somali officials said that, um, you know, if you saw this uh, via the, the drone camera, there's just no way to mistake, uh, you know, a, a woman for a man. They just, they wear completely different types of, of clothing. But it seems that... Uh, that this the strike cell they didn't even have uh, that level of knowledge. So, if you if you can't tell the the clothing of the people that you're uh, you know that you're observing, uh, probably don't have a, a very good idea of of what their their lives are like uh, and you know that the pattern of life as it goes on in Somalia. So why isn't that kind of local knowledge? Why isn't that prioritized? Whether it's in Somalia, whether it's in Gaza, or wherever it happens to be, it seems like this is a recurring part uh, problem with the United States military. You can go back to the beginning of the 2003 Gulf War and how there were people on the ground there saying that they were very uninformed when it came to local habits and local uh, the way the people live their lives locally. Why do you think that is not uh, prioritized amongst the U.S. military, government, and even the CIA? Yeah, I think there's just, uh, you know, there's a lack of, of care, a lack of awareness of this. Uh, the U.S. doesn't see it as a as a problem. Uh, they excused, you know, this particular strike and said that, um, you know, the rules of engagement were followed, all the standard operating procedures were followed, um, and they just view this as as an unfortunate occurrence, uh, these deaths. Uh, it seems that a greater priority is just cycling people uh, through these jobs and, you know, keeping... Uh, you know that schedule is is more important than actually having people that uh, that might be able to distinguish a man from a woman, uh, spot a child, understand you know how how life operates in Somalia. We've seen this confirmation bias uh, over and over again. Uh, this was this was a major factor in the 2021 Kabul strike uh, right at the end of the the U.S. war in Afghanistan uh, when. Uh, the, the U.S. Uh, conducted a drone strike on a uh, what they considered to be uh, an ISIS terrorist. Uh, it turned out to be uh, a, uh, a man who worked for a California-based uh, NGO. Uh, they ended up killing him and nine members of his family, seven of them children. Uh, you know, they just completely misread everything. Uh, they noticed that he took a circuitous route through town and thought that was, uh, uh, you know, in some way, a uh, nefarious activity that he was trying to avoid uh, detection. But really, he was just going on his normal work route, going from, uh, you know, one one compound to another where where he he works. And, um, you know, they they believe that, uh, you know, that he had loaded explosives into the back of his vehicle. Uh, it turned out that it was just, uh, there were just, it was uh, uh, containers of water and you know, if if they had known how life operates in Afghanistan, uh, if they've been able to uh, you know understand uh, the the normal pattern of life there, uh, he might still be alive. But this is just a, it's a reoccurring theme, as you said. You know, going back uh, decades, if not a full century. Yeah, we can go back to and we will in a moment. We'll touch on your writing about the Vietnam War and how that still seems to be 
continuing the many mistakes we made in Vietnam. You quote the drone pilot and strike cell analyst who served in Somalia this year, or the year that Lowell and Miriam were killed, telling The Intercept, when I went to Africa, it seemed like no one was paying attention. It was like we can do whatever we want. It was a different mindset from the special forces I worked with in Afghanistan, as you were mentioning earlier. There was almost no quality control on the vetting of the strikes. A lot of safeguards got left out. So does the U.S. operate its military in a way that treats Africa and Africans differently from the way it treats the rest of the world? Or is the rest of the world treated just as horribly as Africans and Africa are? Yeah, I think there have been some points where yeah, there were more experienced uh, personnel in, in one uh, war zone or another. And I think he just happened to be uh, you know, working in Afghanistan at a time when uh, there were a lot of personnel who had uh, a great deal of experience. And when the U.S. drone war in Somalia ramped up, I think they brought in a lot of inexperienced personnel and thought this was a place for them to get experience. Of course, that puts uh, civilians at extreme risk, puts their lives in jeopardy. But uh, again, it doesn't seem like uh, you know the, the, the Pentagon places a high priority or any kind of premium on that. And there was no, uh, as I said, uh, what they call a checks and balance system in place at the time. Uh, I don't think one has been imposed since, again, I think that uh, it's been more important for them to cycle special ops personnel uh, through these uh, areas of, of responsibility, what they call an AOR, um, in war zones like like Somalia or, or Yemen. And, you know, this is done at the, at the peril of civilians. We are speaking with writer, author, and investigative journalist Nick Terse, who has a new piece at The Intercept. Civilian harm, secret Pentagon investigation found no one at fault in drone strike that killed woman and a four-year-old. You quote strike cell analyst Donald Bolduck, who led Special Operations Command Africa at the time, explaining to you that a review of Trump-era rules by the Biden administration reportedly found that in some countries, operating principles, including a a near certainty that civilians would not be injured or killed in the course of operations, were only enforced for women and children, while a lower standard applied to adult men. All military-age males were considered legitimate targets if they were observed with suspected Al-Shabaab members in the group's territory, as you were saying earlier. This is a more aggressive and violent response than the response that we were getting from the Obama administration. Is it more aggressive, or was it more aggressive under the Trump administration? Was it even more aggressive than it was under the Bush administration. Was Trump returning to the Bush era, which had failed in Afghanistan, Iraq, and in the occupied ter- territories, when Condoleezza Rice pushed for elections in 2006 that critics said would lead to a Hamas victory, and when they did, Rice and the Bush administration claimed they were surprised, although nobody else was. Was Trump continuing the failed policies of the Bush administration, or was he being even more aggressive in the war on terror than Bush was? Yeah, I, I think uh, the Trump administration was the the most aggressive, uh, especially in in these war zones. Well, I should I should say I think I think he, he ramped up uh, you know strikes uh, across the board um, due to these relaxed targeting principles um, because uh, when when he came into the White House and and they relaxed these the uh, number of strikes went way up. I mean, uh, almost immediately within the first year. Uh, the number tripled, and you know, over the the entire Trump presidency, the U.S. conducted 
almost 210 uh, declared attacks in Somalia. And that's during just you know a single four-year term. And that was uh, an almost 500% increase over the, uh, the eight years of the uh, Obama administration. And uh, while uh, the Biden administration has uh, been conducting strikes in, in Somalia since uh, the numbers have gone down to, uh, you know, they're, they're higher than uh, the first uh, Obama term, but they're still uh, much lower than Trump. I think he's conducted now uh, 31 declared strikes there and about, uh, I think, 13 of them were this year. You mentioned that Trump's policy against Somalia in his early days in office, quote, there was another possible contributing factor to the civilian casualties. During 2017 and 2018, commanders of Task Force 111, 111, the Joint Special Operations Command, or JSOC-led unit responsible for drone attacks in Somalia and Yemen, began competing with each other to produce high body counts, raising red flags in the intelligence community, according to a U.S. intelligence source who asked not to be identified due to the sensitivity of this topic. So the implication would be that higher body counts contributed to what could be called a victory for the U.S. and its allies in the region. Were these actions by JSOC, in your opinion, or is there any evidence that would suggest that these actions were best for stabilizing the region and, more importantly, from the U.S. military point of view, best for U.S. national security? It doesn't appear so, because um, you know, at, at this very time, um, you know, Shabab actually uh, increased its territorial hold. Um, it's also its uh, recruiting numbers seem to have gone up at the, at the very same time. So I think it was uh, counterproductive as, as far as that strategy goes. But I think there's something fundamentally flawed about uh, competing to produce a high body count. Uh, obviously, it's it's going to make uh, the likelihood of civilian casualties, uh, you know, uh, it's going to increase that that likelihood uh, if you you have commanders who are are interested in you know just producing kills, and you know that uh, you're also not going to be held responsible for civilian deaths. It's, there's never been um, uh, in 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 the entire uh, you know, history of of U.S. drone strikes in Somalia. There's never been uh, you know any finding of of uh, responsibility for an attack that's killed civilians, uh, you know, again, these are just looked at as, as unfortunate occurrences. So, uh, you know, I think it's, it's militarily counterproductive. And also, you know, it's just, it puts uh, civilians at, at extreme risk. And, you know, in addition to this, this competition that was going on at, at a higher level, uh, I was also told that uh, further down the chain of command, uh, there was another uh, pressure uh, that was uh, that that encouraged more strikes to take place. The drone operators uh, at that time were just uh, just starting to get new awards, what they call uh, remote devices. It's uh, basically a, a, a small little medal that goes on on another medal or ribbon uh, that you're awarded. And in the past, these were uh, generally reserved for uh, personnel who were involved in in what we've uh, historically known as combat. You're out in the field conducting combat operations. But uh, but they opened a new class of awards up for drone operators who were involved in uh, this remote type of, of combat. And uh, folks that I talked to said that this also encouraged attacks. And the uh, the strike cell analyst who I, I spoke with uh, told me that, uh, that 
you know, people wanted to brag about being in combat. Uh, so they wanted to conduct more strikes. So they were much more willing to, um, uh, you know, look at their, their full motion video, um, you know, see someone there and judge them to be a bad actor, a member of Al-Shabaab and uh, push for a strike being carried out. As I was mentioning during your introduction, you are also the author of the 2013 book, Kill Anything That Moves, The Real American War in Vietnam. And you joined us for a conversation on that book when it came out. And people can find that at our Patreon page by going to patreon.com slash this is hell and then searching on your last name, Terse. You uh, quote Lull's brother and Miriam's uncle, Kasim, uh, saying about his sister's killing, her death, her death isn't only what makes me angry. It's that they say that they mistakenly killed her. That hurts me deeply. It was no mistake. She wasn't killed in the car where they couldn't see her. She was hit out in the open. There's no way they can mistake her for a man. It's a lie, and it makes me sick. Is there any indication that drone operators in such circumstances were following orders to, quote-unquote, kill anything that moves, as in the title of your 2013 book on the Vietnam War? Is the U.S. military still following a strategy and have they been consistently following a strategy since Vietnam to kill anything that moves? It seems very close to that. Um, like I said, in Al-Shabaab territory, while uh, they're supposed to stand down if, if they see a child and uh, and a, a woman should at least uh, cause them to, to pause uh, their, their targeting process, uh, if, if you happen to be a man who lives there, uh, it's it's basically open season on you. If, if you're an adult male and you're in Al-Shabaab territory and you are uh, have, have the unfortunate uh, circumstance of being near someone in Al-Shabaab, uh, immediately you're considered uh, a member or a sympathizer. And, you know, under these uh, the Trump era rules of engagement, uh, you could be killed in the process, and you're just uh, as as all the other men in this strike were, uh, you know, considered a, a member of Al Shabaab. Like I said, the the woman and child uh, eventually, when they they recognized this, they couldn't excuse those deaths because uh, it was it was uh, you know highly unlikely that uh, that a a 22 year old woman or her four year old daughter were members of Al Shabaab. But the other men, uh, you know, they're, they're still considered. Uh, members of al-shabaab even though um you know the evidence uh suggests otherwise you write that uh well i guess the bigger question i want to make sure i get to what do you think the long-term implications could be from the u.s actions in somalia either back in 2017 have we seen the out the implications of those actions come to their fruition could it even lead to i don't know increased support for al-shabaab because those supporting such policies might argue that the whole idea is to dissuade somalis from supporting al-shabaab by killing members of al-shabaab so what do you think the long-term implications for these kinds of drone attacks that again happened back in 2017 families have not been compensated for them yet there hasn't been any acknowledgement of you know forgiveness or anything like that what do you think the long-term implications could be of these kinds of drone attacks in somalia on the somali people what does it make somalia more of a national security threat to the united states instead of less of a national security threat 
Well, I, I think it is uh, counterproductive in, in military terms, and generally uh, strikes like this have been used as a recruiting tool by al-Shabaab and by other groups around the world. Um, you know, I think there are real implications for this. Um, you know, it's it's not really the distant past, even though the strike took place in, in 2018. Uh, Trump is now the front runner for the Republican presidential nomination. Um, you know, he's probably a, a coin flip away in that uh, election, should he should he run uh, against uh, President Biden? So, you know, I, I think there are real implications for, uh, you know, the, the rules to again be reversed. Uh, there's a, a, a great chance of that. If he's uh, reelected, I would I would imagine that there'd be a relaxation of the, uh, you know, the Biden era rules of engagement and uh, re uh, reverting back to the rules that we saw in, in 2018. So I think I think those are that's the the scariest prospect when it comes to uh, you know Somalia and and other war zones like uh, like Yemen where the United States still does uh, carry out operations. You also mentioned an investigator asserting that some members of the strike team did not have any full motion video experience. One team member noted that due to a contracting issue. They have lost a lot of experienced personnel due to a contracting issue. How can contracts undermine the ability for the U.S. to determine whether targets are terrorists or women and children fleeing from a U.S. drone strike? Does privatization of the military, a goal of President Bush's Secretary of Defense, Donald Rumsfeld, as well as his, uh, Vice President Dick Cheney, it, it, does that somehow undermine precaution and precautions that the U.S. military is supposed to take in avoiding killing innocent civilians? Yeah, this is something that I heard from uh, a man named Todd Huntley, who was a former judge advocate on uh, special operations uh, task force who, who conduct drone strikes. Uh, he now uh, directs the National Security Law Program at, at Georgetown uh, University. And what he told me is that, uh, you know, that, that contractors, uh, because they're, you know, somewhat outsiders within the military, uh, they're not part of the 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 uh they're they're not members of the military but they're working alongside military members that they're often eager to please uh their their commanders and you know there's there's a profit motive involved wrapped up in this that um you know that you you're not uh you don't want to thwart what the what the commander's goal is uh and he said you know th this this provides uh, a great deal of pressure on uh, the contractor to say yes to get to the uh, what the contractor uh, perceives as a desired outcome of the, the military commander there so it's unlikely that they will uh, speak up or you know argue vociferously against the strike if they believe that their their commander wants to, to take this strike so he said that uh, between that type of pressure and uh, and the the confirmation bias that that seems to be endemic uh, to uh, you know U.S. military operations of this sort, um, you know, it makes it a, a much greater likelihood that the civilians are going to be uh, targeted and, and killed. You quote another of Lull's brothers, thirty-eight year thirty-eight year old Abu Bakar Dahir, who had a succinct response: "Quote: If you admit that you assign someone with no experience." then you have to take responsibility for what they do. This is in reference to the strike cell team that was inexperienced. So 
how unaccountable is the U.S. military for the actions of contractors they hire? And is that the point, to have unaccountable contractors be held responsible as opposed to official U.S. military personnel? Well, U.S. military personnel are almost never held responsible for for anything like this. So, you know, I, I'm not even sure that uh, that that's uh, a, a consideration. Uh, this is something that uh, that not only have I found it in in this case, but uh, Asma Khan in her uh, reporting on the uh, airstrikes in uh, Iraq and Syria, uh, she looked at. Uh, you know, more than a thousand, something like 1300 investigations files. And going through those, uh, they're also uh, conducted by similar strike cells and uh, a mix of, of contractors and military personnel. And in all 1300 of, of those investigations, uh, only one of them cited a, a possible violation of the rules of engagement. And uh, none included a finding of, of wrongdoing. Uh, there were no disciplinary actions taken, uh, which is, is the same as has happened in this uh, drone strike in Somalia that, that I investigated. Even though they found that a woman and child were killed, uh, they didn't find that, uh, that any of the, the rules uh, regarding the strike were, were violated and there was no finding of wrongdoing, no disciplinary action taken against any of these members. So, yeah, you know, I don't. I don't think it, that the the United States, you know, has uh, has any any kind of. Uh, they, they don't even have to uh, slough it off on on contractors. They just uh, they don't take action against anyone, uh, regardless of uh, civilian casualties. We have been speaking with writer, author, and journalist. Nick Terse, who returns to This Is Hell to discuss his investigation at The Intercept, civilian harm. Secret Pentagon investigation found no one at fault in drone strike that killed woman and four-year-old. You can follow Nick on Twitter, at Nick Terse. You can find out more about him, including all of his writing, at nickterse.com. This is an article that appeared, was posted just recently at the intercept and you can find the article there one last question for you nick and as always our final question is what we call the question from hell the question we hate to ask you may hate to answer or our audience is going to hate your response one of the amazing things that i found about this is lull the woman who was killed with her daughter uh her husband believed that this was just an actual mistake it was just an oversight it was a mistake by the u.s military he really believed this was a mistake. You write that over two days this spring, I met with eight of their relatives in Mogadishu. They spoke about Miriam's wide smile and Lowell's nurturing role as a sister and mother of two. They talked about how the deaths have torn their family apart and spoke of the terror that haunts Lowell's surviving son. Each has endured five years of slow torment, waiting and wondering if they would ever know justice as they've never received any kind of compensation whatsoever. Their anguish and rage were palpable, particularly when I showed them the findings of the formerly secret U.S. investigation. So, Nick, following 9-11, many people were asking, why do they hate us? Is anger against the United States fueled by actions taken by the military that people in the U.S. may be completely unaware of? Is the reason they hate us kept secret from the American people? I think that's right. Uh you know, and, and this is something that, that I wanted to get at in this article. I wanted to to give the family a, a forum to, uh, you know, to 
uh, you know, raise raise the questions they wanted to, and also express the anger that they wanted to. Um, you know, they uh, when I I talked to uh, Will's husband Shilo, you know, he he um, you know when we finished our conversation, uh, he finished it in in a fury. I mean, he got uh, he had been sort of distant the whole day, but but when I gave him one last chance to uh, you know air his grievances. He got extremely angry, and he said he wanted to know the truth from the the American government. And he told me that the attack showed that there was no distinction uh, that Americans see, uh, you know, Somali civilians the same as they see Al Shabaab enemies there. Uh, so I, I think that is a reason why. Nick, thank you so much for being back on the show. It's always a pleasure speaking with you. You can find out all about Nick at his website, nickturst.com. Uh, Kill Anything That Moves is just a spectacular book and a really great Thanks. interview when you were on the show in 2013, and people can find that interview over at Patreon. Thanks again so much for being on the show, and I look forward to having you on again. Thanks so much for having me. Take I appreciate care. it. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to. This is hell. What you just heard is an example of what we are willing to cover because we have no conflicts of interest. We cannot lose our jobs or our scholarships or be kicked out of school for broadcasting, live streaming, and podcasting what you just heard. If you appreciate our complete independence and thorough absence of any conflict of interest whatsoever, which allows us to have people on the show like Nick Terse, who regularly breaks news at The Intercept that the establishment, commercial, and public media refuse to report, Please show your appreciation by becoming a subscriber to our bonus Patreon podcast, which goes live this this week on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell during its regular slot Thursday mornings at 10 a.m. Chicago time. Or you can show your support for a completely listener-supported This Is Hell just by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support and seeing all the different ways that you can support This Is Hell. On our most recent bonus Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell, I try to trick subscribers into thinking that what I would be talking about is the horror show of November 2024, the next election, next November, as uh, former if uh, some, former uh, President Bush was re-elected. That's what we're trying to get people to think that I was going to be dis discussing, how November 2024 is going to be a nightmare, especially if Trump is re-elected. Instead, I pulled a bait-and-switch and talked about the horror show that is happening this November, November 2023. The horror show that happens every year right around this time, and that is the looming horror show of the holidays. What is supposed to be a joyous time of year, and how capitalism, colonialism, the two-party system, and even organized religion, that is if you it just, it, all those things just ruin your holidays, that is if you are a the bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, podcast host, live streaming host, where you have voluntarily spent more than 27 years focusing on the most hellish news and views that is apparently not fit to print in America's allegedly free press. So thanks, This Is Hell, for both enlightening me and making me fully aware that holidays are just another part of our living and breathing nightmare. Following our trigger warning, our public service announcement on the horrors of the holiday season... Who's kidding who? I'm still getting a Christmas tree. We played an interview from 2006 with last year's last week's final guest, Sari Makdisi, the head of the UCLA Department of English and the author of several books on William Blake, as well as Palestine. 
Sari was on the show 17 years ago, immediately following Israel's election, that was a victory for far-right Israeli politician Avigdor Lieberman, which would be a harbinger of things to come in Israel, including the current war in Gaza. But the only way you can hear me going off on my hellish holiday season and hear a 2006 talk about an Israeli election that has had a huge impact on Israel ever since, as well as get a discount code word uh, for all of our stuff at thisishell.com when you click on support. And you can ask a question from hell for me, your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz, and to stay on top of everything going on behind the scenes with exclusive content only for Patreon subscribers is by, you guessed it, er, subscribing at patreon.com slash thisishell. Richard, what is this week's question from hell, and how are our listeners responding on Patreon? This week's question from hell is, what obvious reality do you insist on denying in spite of all evidence? Alrighty. I uh, have not brought up the Patreon page. Uh, I'm sorry, would you like to do something else? start with the This Is Hell's post today. All right. Um... Wesley W. answers that you can grow young. <laughs> Basic physics tells us we can't, but I still don't accept that evidence. Okay, and these are from the Facebook page? Yes. Okay. Aaron D. answers that a- ancient aliens pranked a bunch of barely evolved primates. <laughs> so this week's question from hell is what obvious reality do you insist on denying in spite of all evidence? John T. answers the possibility of retirement. (laughs) Sad and true. Marco G. answers the hangover will be minimal. (laughs) Fabio L. answers genocide. (laughs) Following that up, Roy Ray O. answers Elton John. (laughs) Really? Elton John, of all things. Because when I think genocide, that's what I think. No, he's uh, the obvious reality he's denying is Elton John. <laughs> I see. One other one from the hell, hell, hell hole. Walter B. answers that I'm helping the climate by diligently washing and recycling glass and plastic. <laughs> Doing the exact same stupid thing. I think that's uh, about it for the moment. All right. So the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. You can post it on uh, or in our Discord community or on our Patreon page, or you can just email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show, and we'll be announcing this week's winner. And now, the return of, not the return of, it's kind of the return of Seb Vopper, because last week we had some tactical issues that we're hoping we'll get over this week. But now, a new past inside the present, where we get the historical context of the past so we can have a better understanding of the present Dr. Sebastian Vupper and the past inside the present. Take it away, Sebastian. Do you have his sound? There you go. The past inside the present. Uh... 
let's hope my internet plays along. Anyway, we are living in a somewhat topsy-turvy, upside-down world these days, it seems. This is not terribly surprising uh, since our media has conditioned us to think in purely black and white, us and them, with us or against us terms. Whoever us is in whatever given moment, we have been conditioned into a kind of thinking that leaves little... Uh, that leaves little room for nuance, and increasingly it goes to a point where if you want to add nuance to a situation uh, and wish to engage in analysis that goes deeper than gut reaction, you end up getting branded firmly as against us. Only one thing can be true. There is no complexity allowed. The good guys are always good and with us. The bad guys are irredeemably evil and by any means necessary can be deployed uh, and any means necessary can be deployed to eradicate them. We seem to enter a weird post 9-11-2.0 phase culturally, but this time with more high horse riding and condescension for those not acknowledging the quote-unquote reality of the situation. I personally am now in a weird situation where my relatively moderate position on the situation in and around Israel means that in the eyes of the German state, I am basically a Nazi, at least in my thoughts. See, uh, the German state recently declared Hamas a terrorist organization that is fundamentally at odds with the German constitution. Uh, the German state then also declared that from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free is an official slogan of Hamas. And as such, displaying the slogan or using the slogan online is now essentially handled with the same level of scrutiny as displaying in public or using online symbols and slogans of the Nazi party. Regardless whether or not one actually in word, thought or action supports Hamas specifically. Protesters in Berlin have also reportedly been arrested for displaying signs that accuse Israel of genocide. And the comment section of German newspapers and prominent Twitter accounts are full of people accusing those uh, doing so of, quote, unquote, not knowing how to use a dictionary. Because, well, black or white, no nuance allowed. But also... None of these very smart and very righteous people seem to care about what Raphael Lemkin thought constitutes a genocide. Because, see, the dictionary by necessity of keeping entries short does not include the full definition, so Lemkin must obviously be wrong because his definition cannot be found in the dictionary. For the uninitiated on genocide discourse, welcome, take a cookie. Who is this guy and why is it important to understand what he thought about genocide? Well, Raphael Lemkin was a Polish lawyer of Jewish descent who barely escaped the Holocaust himself. After arriving in the United States, Lemkin published the book Axis Rule in Occupied Europe in 1944. In this book, Lemkin developed the framework for and coins the term of genocide. He subsequently developed the concept of genocide as a distinct crime against humanity and drafted the so-called Genocide Convention of the United Nations. So why is it absolute bupkis if some jagoffs come into your comments and bleed out that actually Israel can't be doing a genocide against the Palestinians because since the 2000s, the Palestinian population has actually increased? 
and that you should find a dictionary to look up what genocide means because, well, genocide per definition of the guy who coined the term and defined the concept is not limited to physical destruction of a people. That is a part of it for sure, but it is not only genocide when the bodies are hitting the floor. It's genocide to suppress culture and it is genocide to forcibly remove people from their land. There are a lot more constituting elements to what makes up genocide. Just look it up yourself. I don't have time to go into all of them, but don't look it up in a dictionary because in a dictionary, yes, genocide will for the most part be limited to physical to, to the physical destruction part. Words have meaning, yes, and dictionaries, while helpful, don't have room for deeper analysis of complex concepts. Anyway, so today I wanted to start talking about uh, about Zionism as a concept, which is also something where a dictionary wouldn't necessarily be too helpful. Merriam-Webster defines Zionism as, yeah, I always wanted to do something as intentionally trite as this. Uh, Merriam-Webster defines Zionism as, uh, quote-unquote, an international movement originally for the establishment of a Jewish national or religious community in Palestine and later for the support of modern Israel, unquote. Which, yes, that is a definition of the term, but as hinted at above, it is by far not the whole story and it puts the horse in front of the wagon because zionism's history is a lot more complicated the whole in palestine part is in particularly uh something that glosses over quite a lot of debate and back and forth over where exactly such a jewish state should be created but one thing after the other. So what is the history of Zionism? Let's look at the word first, because that's what we're doing today. We're looking at words. Zionism contains the term Zion, which is indeed a term that in the Hebrew Bible is used to describe Jerusalem or the land of what we call Israel today. Uh, the term describes essentially a political Jewish nationalism, a nationalism that at the time of its inception lacked a state and had only a broadly defined nation in the original sense. We're going to do, as I said, a lot of word analysis today. So what is a nation in the original sense? Nation comes from the Latin word nasci, uh, the part the past participle of natus to be born so originally saying that one is from such and such a nation means that one is from a certain people they are being born into the term nation only took on the meaning of nation state in the modern sense during and after the 19th century so zionism is a nationalism for the jewish nation who had no state to speak of at the time of its inception so now we have to talk about the history of the Jewish people, <laughs> which, well, it's a long history, but let me be brief. Uh, let's start with a reminder about the Jewish people. Who are the Jewish people? Jewish people are both followers of the Mosaic faith and members of a distinct ethnic group. One is considered to be Jewish in the more traditional sense if one's mother is Jewish. In that sense, Judaism is traditionally rather exclusionary. And since the Bible declares the Jewish people as God's chosen people, it would kind of make sense, right? We are God's chosen, you are not. Sucks to be you. No, you can't join. You can't join. No goyim allowed. At least that's how quite a lot of branches of Judaism handle things. Judaism traditionally is a non-proselytizing religion 
which means that traditionally one cannot convert to Judaism. You are either among God's chosen people or you are not. Uh, but things get a little fuzzy on the edges in more liberal branches and reformed Judaism and whatnot. Converts are indeed welcome. But by and large, Judaism describes a religion and an ethnicity. And the two things overlap, but not perfectly. You can be from a Jewish background, but not be religious and still would be considered Jewish. At least that's how Jewish folks have explained this to me. The Jewish people had no state of their own, no exclusive homeland in the 19th century and for some quite some time before that. The Hebrew Bible itself talks about past periods of time during which the Jewish people had been expelled from their lands and the temple in Jerusalem destroyed. There was the Assyrian exile and the Babylonian captivity. And then finally, in 70 CE, the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and the Second Temple, which is traditionally seen as the beginning of the current Jewish diaspora, the time during which the Jewish people had no homeland of their own to speak of. Jewish People have been living outside of their homeland, however, for centuries before the destruction of the temple. But the loss of the temple itself was seen as a market incision in Jewish history since Jewish culture and religion had traditionally been centralized and focused on the temple as an institution. In a past episode, I have talked about the long history of specifically European anti-Semitism, which targeted Jewish people living across Europe for centuries. These centuries of enduring exclusion and persecution culminated in the 19th century in a series of nasty pogroms across Eastern Europe. Uh, and these pogroms, in turn, fueled a lot of Jewish immigration to the United States. But several other things were in motion at the time there as well. For one, nationalism emerged as a new way of identity construction during the 19th century. Whereas a personal fealty was no longer to a king or a noble ruler, but to a nation, a people, and the legal fiction of a state that these people then created as a nation state. Also, Jews across Europe began to secularize and assimilate into European broader mainstream culture, in turn shedding much of their distinctly Jewish identity in the process. And now two dynamics kicked in, one from within and one from without. From without people who had traditionally harbored disdain for Jews for reasons as most hatred this is not necessarily a rational thing where one can't point to specific reasons it's more of a well that they're jews so we hate them um there was this fear that now jews could just turn on stealth mode and before you know it they could be anywhere and anyone on the other side inside judaism there was the ongoing and more pronounced fear that jews existing as these foreign bodies with the nation states in which they were a minority with little power to defend themselves um and that fear fueled the idea that Jews should try to establish a nation state of their own. However, where this nation state should emerge was not immediately agreed upon. Uh, there is also a third quite insidious streak to uh, this emerging Zionism that has been part of the whole thing from the beginning uh, that is rarely talked about in polite society, and that is Christian Zionism. The secular non-Jewish Zionists in some European countries began to agitate for a Jewish nation-state for very non-beneficial reasons. These were not allies to the Jewish people or the Jewish cause. No, these secular Goyim Zionists were basically just anti-Semites who thought 
it would be a great idea to give the hated Jews a homeland. Because if the Jews had a homeland, then it would be much easier to just kick them out and have them live there, wherever that was. As long as it was not in England, the United States, Germany, Holland, or whatever country the person in question was coming from. The Christian Zionists had, and still to this day, have a different agenda. These mostly came out of American evangelicalism, and they wanted a Jewish homeland in Palestine or Israel for the sole purpose of fulfilling a supposedly biblical prophecy where the Jews must return to their homeland and rebuild the temple for Jesus to return, at which point most Jews will die and go to hell or something. It's pretty gross. And then finally, there were the Jewish Zionists who were reacting to the hell of centuries of persecution of their people. And uh, I'll return to all of those and the surprising and hellish complexities of the ways they interplayed with each other next week. Doctor, Chuck stepped out mm -hmm. for a moment. He had a clear oh, throat. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that happens. I was checking to see if uh, Jeff had sent a tease yet, and he had not. Hey, uh, thanks a lot for the tip on the Susan Neiman article at the New York Review of Books. Uh, we have booked her to be on the show next Monday. So oh, prior excellent. to you being on the show, we are going to hear about, well, why don't you tell people what the article is about? Uh, well, the article basically just goes into uh, the, the, the whole story of how, um, well, German-Israeli relations and uh, how, like, what I've talked about in, in the segment at the beginning, uh, the whole, like, this, this really, really black and white thinking and about, you know, being unconditionally pro-Israel, and if you're not unconditionally pro-Israel, you're basically a Nazi. Yeah, and uh, that's actually becoming quite a problem when <laughs> you want to have any kind of dissent within right. Germany at this point in time. So mm -hmm. thank you very much for the tip. She's going to be on next Monday. We're looking forward to having her on. And No pressure. Uh, look, <laughs> shush. And uh, we will be speaking again with you uh, next Monday. Looking forward All to right. talking to you as well. Okay. All right, talk to you soon. Yep. So... Do we, we don't know what Jeff's doing during the moment of truth yet. We but, have no idea. But, Richard, who are our upcoming guests here on This Is Hell? Well, you might have to help me out here a little bit. I have that we have writer Pooja Bhatia. Look at be, you. We'll be on to discuss her Baffler article, Deadly Strain, how the UN sought to deny its role in Hades. Chloria. Cholera. Uh, cholera ep epidemic. <laughs> that was the word you had trouble with. The other Pooja Bhatia was no problem for you, but cholera. That's pretty funny. Uh, and that's not a happy story. I don't have any other information because you yeah. <laughs> copy pasted Nick's information on here. Oh, I copy and pasted Nick's instead of our, our, fi our final guest next, this week. <laughs> yes. Jeez, now I got to try to remember who our final guest is. <laughs> I know I just read it the other day. It was a really horrible something or other. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so out of it this morning. I woke up at 4.45 and I couldn't get back to sleep, and I've not been able to see out of my left eye this morning. Uh, but anyway, thanks to Richard Norwood for producing. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz, beginning Monday, December 4th, and running throughout all of December, as well as during our first show of the new year on January 2nd, 2024, this is Hell. We'll be live streaming, podcasting, and airing the very best of 2023, our favorite interviews of the year, as selected by listeners and staff of This is Hell. Our Wednesday guest is Kay Gabriel, and she wrote an amazing article at N Plus One magazine about how the anti-trans movement is all, it, its real goal is to end public education 
Anyway, tell us what your favorite interviews were, who were our fa- who were your favorite guests, uh, and if we play any of the conversations you picked, we will thank you personally on the show during Best of December. 13 lucky interviews suggested by our listeners as well as our staff. We will be playing those throughout December, the very best of 2023. If you have, if you want to send your favorite or favorites to Chuck at this is hell.com, you can do that. You can DM them to us via X at this is hell radio. You can post them in our discord community under our announcement in the general category. Message it to us via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio or leave your reply in the comments or at our Facebook group page, Welcome to the Hellhole, or share them with us via the announcement on Patreon. We also hope to see all of you on Wednesday, December 20th, Winter Solstice Eve for the annual This Is Hell Holiday Office Party, which we will which will be held during our regularly scheduled uh, office hours at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue uh, in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood, beginning at around 6 p.m. in the evening, as they do every Wednesday. But on December 20th, it's a very special This Is Hell Holiday Office Party. If your office doesn't have a holiday office party, make our party your party. If your if you don't have an office <laughs> at your workplace then ask the people who you work in your non-office with to join us for the this is hell holiday office party or if you just don't like the people who you work with and you there's some that you get along with make our holiday office party your holiday office party uh one last thing i wanted to mention and that is this email that we re- recently received got an email at chuck at this is hell.com from julia Julia writes, hi there, we love your podcast, This Is Hell, and we'd like to sponsor one or more of your episodes. Briefly on our product, our little two-ounce elixir makes people more productive, focused, and less stressed through the nootropics, adaptogens, natural ingredients, and mushrooms inside. Let me know if you're interested. I'd love to let you know what we had in mind regarding the collaboration. Warm regards, Julia. So, Julia is constantly emailing me about this yet again someone is offering to pay us but the only way they will do it is if we shill for their product which who knows it might be great it might be snake oil no idea however if we did take money from an advertiser we would have to promote their product if it works or not because we would be getting paid to do so advertising at its core is Dishonest. It's payola, money given to broadcasters for them to uncritically promote whatever it is they're getting paid to sell. Commercials are inherently dishonest, as is capital capitalism writ large. All that said, this is hell is and always will be completely commercial free, so not for profit that we don't make enough money to be non-profit. We are completely commercial and corporate grant money free, so we have no conflict of interest, either real or perceived. And you may have noticed I simply called their product an elixir without sharing its brand name on air. You also may have noticed that during this week's Moment of Truth, we mentioned Vandana Vijay's uh, biochemist behind a post-social replenishment drink, whatever the hell that is. In the CoverMG.com story, they too offer the name of Vijay's drink, but we again did not share that brand's name because that kind of free advertising is still advertising and we want nothing to do with it. 
So everyone knows, we could take advertiser money, we could run commercials, but we never will. Yes, accepting such money, and we have had it offered to us on several occasions over the years, would be really good for our bottom line, and not doing so is plunging us deep in the red. But I'd rather die on my feet in economic ruin than live on my knees, and Julia will not stop emailing us. So here's what I'm thinking about doing. I'm going to ask Julia for $10 million to see if she'll that'll make her go away. If Julia does respond to our offer, $10 million, we'll tell you exactly what she says. Breaking news, though, we got just now got yet another email from Julia. That's why I was away while Sebastian was doing his past inside the present. She writes, hello, I'm not sure if my previous emails have made it to you, but I thought I'd give it another shot. We're all about real partnerships so i'd love to i'd love like you to try our elixir before we talk about any sponsorship just let me know where to send the samples and they'll be on their way hope we can work together julia okay so now they're willing to send samples so what do you think we should do listeners should we try the elixir during office hours maybe even the holiday office party should we just ask for the 10 million dollars and let her go away would you be interested in trying the elixir? Is the elixir poison? Do I want to be the first person who's tasting it? Anyway, if you have any suggestions on how we should react to this, please send your thoughts to chuckatthisishell.com. Pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996, this is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.